Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. With me, as usual, is my good friend Matthew. Glad you came back again. How was your week? My week was good. I met up with an old friend that went from nursery school through high school together with me. I have a few of those. They're great. Yeah. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Yo quiero dark poutine. Oh, yo quiero? What does that mean? I want. Oh, well, there you go. Remember the Taco Bell Chihuahua? Yes. There you go. Ah. RCMP officers arrived at the Blackman family residence on Spurraway Avenue in Coquitlam, B.C.'s Ranch Park subdivision in the early morning hours of January 18, 1983. A neighbor had called 911 after hearing screams and then witnessing what appeared to be a domestic argument across the street that had escalated into a shooting. Inside the eerily silent home, as the cold winter rain fell, the responding officers found a horrific and bloody scene. Six members of the Blackman family were dead. The deceased were Richard Blackman, 50, his wife Irene Blackman, 49, their daughter, Roberta Lynn Davies, 28, Roberta's husband, John Iowerth Davies, 39, Karen Dale Rhodes, 25, another of the Blackman's daughters, and the youngest of the Blackman children, 16-year-old son Rick Blackman, Jr. Outside the home, police had detained a young man, 22-year-old Bruce Alfred Blackman another of Irene and Richard's sons. Bruce had been picked up as police arrived and was acting bizarrely. He was telling the RCMP officers that he was the Antichrist and that the world was going to end on January 31st. You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 185, She Told Me To, The Blackman Family Tragedy. 
The research for this episode comes from many of the usual sources, news articles and court documents. However, the descriptions of the crime scene come from the only book I could find on the case, A Voice Out of Nowhere by Janice Holly Booth. It was a neighbor, Ed Field, who'd lived across the street from the Blackman Spanish-style house who had called 911. An early riser at around 5.30 a.m., Field heard screaming coming from somewhere outside. Looking out the window, Mr. Field noticed all the lights were on in the house across the street. He then noticed one man chasing another across the lawn. The pursuer had something in his hand, but Field could not determine what it was due to distance and darkness. Ed went back to his morning cup of tea, trying to mind his own business, thinking it had to be just some drunken argument. The family that lived in the home, the Blackmans, were a fairly large clan. It was hard to keep track of them all. A few minutes later, Ed was startled when he heard more screams. This time it was a woman's voice. It sounded like she was pleading to someone. Ed looked out the window again in time to hear two loud bangs. He saw the person being chased, maybe a woman, fall to the ground. The person who'd been pursuing her dragged the other person across the driveway and into the open garage. The garage door was closed soon after the pair entered. That's when Ed called the cops. It was 5.48 a.m. The RCMP pulled onto Spurway Avenue and stopped just down the street from the Blackman's house at 5.55 a.m. A young man in a leather jacket, blue jeans, and wearing a headband staggered out of the darkness toward him, coming from the direction in which they were headed. The police officer spoke with the young man who was evasive with them, saying he'd been at the elementary school just up the street, but that didn't make any sense at all. While one officer stayed with the young man, two others walked cautiously up the street toward the Blackman's home. Field came outside and explained to the officers what he had seen, and although he could not say for sure who it was, the man detained by the officer down the street was the man who Ed had seen chasing the man and then pursuing a woman who'd fallen and then been dragged into the garage. The young man seemed disoriented. He had blood on his shirt. He handed the officer his wallet. His ID indicated his name was Bruce Alfred Blackman. He was 22 years old. According to Janice Holly Booth's book, A Voice Out of Nowhere, when the RCMP constable asked the young man what had happened, he said, quote, I can't remember. I'm possessed by the devil. I'm the Antichrist. And on the 31st, it's all over, man. The world's gonna end. The Big Bang. I'm possessed. My family is possessed. You're dead. I'm dead. End quote. Up the street before entering the residence, the responding RCMP officers peered through a garage window. On the floor, halfway through a door leading from the garage into the house, was a body of what appeared to be a woman, lying face down. She was not moving. The officers called for backup and then entered the house, guns drawn. Inside, the police officers found evidence of a bloody altercation in numerous rooms. It was something none of them had ever seen before or since. There was a 22 caliber rifle on the stairs of the split-level home. Another 22 was later found outside on the lawn. The kitchen was awash in blood, but there was no one in that room. It appeared that whatever had happened seemed to have started there and blood trails led away from the kitchen. Just inside the home, in the main hallway, a man lay on his side. He was alive but barely, and he had bled a lot. He appeared to be gravely injured. The officers called for paramedics. 
The ambulance arrived only minutes later, and three minutes after that, the man died. He'd bled out and had been unable to say a word before he expired. The bodies of two other males, a middle-aged man lying face up and what appeared to be a teenager lying face down, were dead in pools of blood in the basement near a pool table. Inside the master bedroom in another pool of blood was the body of a middle-aged woman laying on her back. Her eyes were open, but she was not moving. She wore only socks and underwear, and her arms were raised above her shoulders. One arm lay across her face. The rest of the rooms in the house were clear. The officers then focused on the garage. They stepped gingerly over the body they'd seen through the window. The woman had an obvious gunshot wound to the head, and she was clearly dead. Inside the garage, between two vehicles, lay the body of a sixth person, a woman. Her jacket had been pulled up over her head. There was blood pooled beneath her. A bloody hammer sat on a workbench in the garage. The cop attending to Bruce Blackman had ushered the young man safely into the backseat of his police cruiser. On hearing of the bodies being found at the house, the officer read Bruce Blackman his rights, telling the young man he was being arrested for murder. They drove to the RCMP detachment office in Coquitlam. As Bruce was questioned, he made a disjointed confession. He blamed the massacre of his family on voices that had been tormenting him and telling him what to do for months. As Bruce was being interviewed, the IDENT team arrived at 2926 Spurway Avenue to begin processing the crime scene. The word was out that there'd been a multiple slang in the quiet Coquitlam subdivision. News media descended on the two-and-a-half-year-old home reporting that six people, all family, had been killed there, and the suspect, who police already had in custody, was a son of two of the victims. Neighbors milled around the outside watching police do their thing and wheel out six bodies covered by blue blankets for transport to the morgue. All of them were shocked that something like this could have happened in their neck of the woods. People who knew the family were devastated by the news. No one could believe what had happened. Richard Blackie Blackman, 50, was a well-liked and hard-working guy and a member of the Vancouver Fire Department since 1978, working on one of the fireboats in Vancouver Harbor. He'd been a marine engineer before that. He died of multiple gunshot wounds. Irene Blackman had been shot twice. She worked as a clerk at the province newspaper and was also much loved, and her co-workers said she was kind and easy to get along with. According to an article in the province that day, she was seen as a mother figure by her juniors at the paper, which was par for the course as she was the matriarch of a large clan. 16-year-old Richard Blackman, Jr., was also popular at Frederick Banting Jr. Secondary School, where he played both hockey and football. He'd been executed with a single gunshot wound to the head. Karen Dale Rhodes, the Blackman's 25-year-old daughter, had just separated from her husband, moving back home in the weeks before her death. She had been shot twice. Roberta Davies, the eldest of the murdered Blackman children, had been living in North Vancouver with her husband. She had been shot and beaten in the head with the hammer that cops had found in the garage. Roberta's husband, John Davies, was also one of the dead. He'd been shot multiple times and had also been beaten in the head with the same hammer. In the months before the massacre, Bruce's behavior had become increasingly erratic and bizarre, and the Blackmans were afraid of what he might do. He was claiming over and over that he was possessed by the devil. The family considered having him committed. Bruce's issues had begun years earlier while he was attending Argyle Secondary School in North Vancouver. Bruce was not the best student. He seemed distracted and did not take school very seriously. 
his twin brother Barry got much better grades. Looking exactly alike was pretty much where the similarities ended. According to Janice Booth's book, quote, even though they had always dressed alike until grade seven, their differences were becoming apparent. Barry was organized and logical. Bruce was erratic and impulsive. Barry dressed well and kept his hair short. Bruce grew his hair long and would sometimes wear the same clothes for a week, end quote. As he stumbled through a few years of high school, in his twin brother's shadow, Bruce had started partying a lot. Smoking weed was his thing. He didn't finish high school spectacularly. Again, Barry was Bruce's opposite, graduating from school with good grades, joining the Canadian Armed Forces in 1980, and being relocated to Ottawa. For Bruce, though, the party continued, and he moved into an apartment on Lonsdale Avenue in North Van with a buddy. Bruce was working for the District of North Vancouver as a swamper on the back of a garbage truck. Other than a lack of ambition, Bruce seemed like an ordinary guy. He liked soccer and frisbee, he hunted and worked on cars and hung out with his friends. But in 1982, something seemed to be going wrong with him. Bruce, who never had been very interested in religion, began collecting pamphlets from the Jehovah's Witnesses who knocked on the door regularly, especially after Bruce had chatted with them once. He began obsessively reading the Bible. He said that the book held personal messages for him, and he found the book of Revelations particularly compelling. He was also hearing voices, often a female, and he went on tirades about Armageddon. He began wearing a headband that he refused to take off, calling it his crown of thorns. In October 1982, a disturbing incident occurred while on a hunting trip with his father and Barry, who was on a brief leave, and some others. The group were sitting around their campfire when Bruce leapt up ranting. According to the book, A Voice Out of Nowhere, quote, You've fallen for a lie, he shouted. Our government created war to make you kill, kill, kill. You can't kill and know God. You can't kill and be pure. You're all fucking hypocrites, end quote. Bruce went on like that for around 20 minutes before he suddenly went quiet, walked away, and went to bed. His dad apparently thought Bruce had been smoking too much weed and it had begun to affect his thinking. For the next couple of months, Bruce continued to spiral downward. The voice told him that she was God and that Bruce was the Antichrist. He stopped sleeping and his drug use increased. He poured cups of coffee for people he believed to be in the room with him, but weren't. In early December, Barry, who was still in Ottawa with the armed forces, got a phone call from Bruce. Bruce told his twin brother that he was rarely eating, he could not sleep, and as well as hearing voices and getting messages from the Bible, there were also transmissions directed at him from the television. He was afraid to sleep, saying that the woman whose voice he heard in his head would kill him if he did. Bruce was certain that the world was going to end soon, most likely on the 31st of December. The Blackman family, knowing Bruce desperately needed help, involved a Vancouver psychiatrist, Dr. Harvey Breen. According to a later Vancouver Sun article, on December 16, 1982, Breen received a phone call from Blackman's sister, Roberta, who was concerned about her brother. Roberta told the doctor that her brother was highly confused and may have taken marijuana, cocaine, and LSD. Breen went to see Bruce Blackman the same day. He said that Bruce was reading the book of Revelations, was obsessed with the number seven, and wanted him to call a church to find the number of candles on the altar. Blackman told the doctor he was possessed by an all-powerful female, was lost in time, and was the Antichrist. Speaking about Bruce's general emotional state, Breen said, The young man seemed highly frightened and excited. Breen came to the conclusion Blackman was in a psychotic state, 
and diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia with delusions of grandeur. Breen had felt that a period of commitment would be the best for Bruce Blackman and drew up committal papers, which he gave to Bruce's father, Richard. Richard and Irene felt that commitment was too much and they'd have to think about it. Christmas and New Year's came and went and were relatively uneventful. Things were looking up. The family thought that things were getting better. Bruce had seen the doctor regularly and was talking with him. And we'll take a break right here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. Uh, what do you think of this story so far, Matthew? I know you don't. You haven't said anything yet. Uh, I'm keeping kind of quiet because I've had some, a lot of firsthand experience with this sort of situation. Not, not this particular case. Not but. this case, and not as extreme. But I'll talk about it at the end. So um, right. you know, I'm at this point. I'm just sort of like I've been there, and this wanting not to commit somebody. Yeah is, um, yeah, it's not going to go well. Bruce had moved back in with his family and seemed to have turned a corner. He had finally been accepted to take a millwrights course at Selkirk Community College in Nelson. He had applied a year before and had seemed excited when he learned of his enrollment. On the 10th of January, Bruce quit his job and said goodbye to his co-workers. He went by his former roommate's place to pick up some of his clothes and said he was feeling better about life, like things were turning around. He told his former roomie that his dad would come by soon and pick up the rest of his stuff. Bruce went to Nelson on January 16th, but possibly due to the stress of the move, he decompensated quickly and the voices became extremely loud again. And after only one day, he headed back down the highway for home. On the afternoon of January 17th, Bruce arrived at his family's home in quite a state. They were surprised to see him. He was clearly in crisis. According to Janice Booth's book, Bruce later said that the voices were loud that night. The most prominent female voice said, quote, The gateway is narrowing. You are time. You are the angel. You must liberate your family. End quote. Bruce knew he had to act. While the family ate dinner upstairs, Bruce was in the basement loading the two twenty-two caliber rifles he would later use to kill them. They had no clue what he was up to down there. That evening, Richard Blackman talked to Bruce's psychiatrist again. Mr. Blackman told Dr. Breen that Bruce had taken a turn for the worse. Blackman said that his son wasn't eating, sleeping, or bathing properly. Again, the doctor implored Mr. Blackman to bring his son to Royal Columbia in New Westminster for immediate commitment. Mr. Blackman said that he thought that was an overreaction and that he could handle Bruce until the morning. Richard Blackman stayed awake and the rest of the family went to bed. At 2.30 a.m., Bruce, who'd been napping on the couch, was up, ranting, Bible in hand. Bruce calmed down after a half hour or so and went back to the couch where he'd been sleeping. At 4.45 a.m., Roberta Davies' phone rang. It was her brother Bruce. 
Before hanging up, Bruce told her that he had a knife and that something was going to happen. At 4.49, Roberta called Dr. Breen and woke him. Breen told Roberta to call the police right away. Roberta told the doctor that she'd rather handle it herself and told Breen that she and her husband were heading out to Coquitlam right away to deal with Bruce. Roberta and John hopped into their car and raced down the highway toward Coquitlam. Police surmised that Bruce had already killed the other four members of his family before Roberta and John had arrived. It had been Roberta and John who Ed Field had seen being pursued outside the Blackman's home by Bruce. Bruce's roommate, 24-year-old Terry Vermeulen, spoke to the province newspaper about Bruce Blackman. Quote, Vermeulen said, Blackman was a pretty ordinary guy. He liked cars, girls, and partying. He'd go for a few beers, but if anything, he didn't drink that much. He'd smoke a little pot sometimes, but there were never any hard drugs. Then about two months ago, he started interpreting the Bible. He wanted to talk to me about messages he thought were in it for him. He would see messages, subliminal messages, in many things. We'd be sitting around watching television, and he'd see something in a show that he thought was a message. End quote. On hearing about the killings, Barry Blackman flew home from Ottawa, and his sister, Kathy Wiley, 26, came home from Quinnell. Bruce Alfred Blackman was charged with six counts of murder and the deaths of his family and remanded for psychiatric evaluation. In February of 1983, Bruce was found unfit to stand trial. He was too sick to properly answer the charges against him, but in April, after treatment and lots of antipsychotic medication, Bruce was deemed fit to go to trial, and his next court appearance was booked for May. But the preliminary hearing was waived in favor of going directly to trial. Bruce did not want the press in the courtroom for his trial, which began in November of 1983. His request was not granted. Bruce Blackman, eyes downcast, pleaded not guilty to each of the six murder charges. The judge, Justice Lloyd McKenzie, told the jury that the only issue to be determined by this trial was Bruce Alfred Blackman's sanity at the time of the slayings. After his brief trial, at which psychiatrists were the predominant witnesses, the consideration of Bruce Blackman's sanity or lack of it when he killed his family was given to the jury to decide. From a CP article published on November 5, 1983, quote, The jurors took 40 minutes yesterday to conclude that Blackman was incapable of understanding the nature of his actions or knowing it was wrong when he shot and bludgeoned his parents, one brother, two sisters, and a brother-in-law. During the first-degree murder trial, the court was told of Blackman's psychotic, tortured mind. He believed he was possessed and felt he had to prevent the end of the world by killing his family. Because of the unusual nature of the case, the Crown and Defence set aside the adversarial system and both put up the defence of insanity. Blackman was ordered kept in strict custody at the Forensic Psychiatric Institute in Coquitlam. Blackman, now 23, smiled when the verdict was handed down. Mr. Justice Lloyd McKenzie said in an address to the jury before its deliberations that Blackman suffered a grave mental disturbance that caused his totally outrageous actions. The case was described by defense lawyer Richard Levinson as a bizarre tragedy. In testimony during the trial, Dr. Philip Adelman, a psychiatrist, testified that Blackman was not capable of appreciating the nature of his actions. Adelman, who treated Blackman after the killing, said the young accused suffered from a severe disease of the mind and was given antipsychotic medication. Adelman also offered details of Blackman's Bible-based delusions, including a belief that he had to kill his family to save the world. End quote. Bruce Blackman changed his name in 1988. Although easy to find, I thought it was best to give him his privacy. 
After eight years in Riverview, the psychiatric institution in Coquitlam, Bruce was given a conditional discharge in August of 1991, provided he meets certain conditions. From court documents, he was to be the... He was to be subject to direction and supervision of the program director and a legal nominee who would make determinations about Bruce's treatment and housing. He was to reside at the Forensic Psychiatric Institute or at such a place operated by the Forensic Psychiatric Commission as deemed appropriate. He was to remain at the place of residence for the purposes of treatment or rehabilitation as directed. He was to take medication and treatment as may be prescribed. He was not to acquire, possess, or use any firearm or offensive weapon. He was to keep the peace and be of good behavior and refrain from the use of alcohol or unprescribed drugs. He was to present himself before the Order and Council Review Board, which is a review board succeeded in law when required. Bruce was released from the hospital in 1995 with similar conditions. Bruce has always maintained that he feels terrible about what happened all those years ago and no doubt misses his family. More than 30 years after the events of January 18, 1983, in a 2014 press release about the publication of her book on the case, A Voice Out of Nowhere, Janice Holly Booth said, quote, Telling this story now is important because with the closing of mental institutions across the United States and Canada, we have more mentally ill people living among us than ever before, she says. According to recent research by the New York Times and Mother Jones, mass murders committed by those who are severely mentally ill and untreated are on the rise. Everyone benefits when people with mental illnesses can easily access and receive the treatment they need. Without an effective mental health care system in place, Booth asserts that the next Sandy Hook is right around the corner and there is no way to predict when or where it will happen. We might as well brace for it, she says, because it's coming, end quote. But does that quote above really give people suffering from mental illness a fair shake? I don't think it does. It just doesn't feel right to me. According to a 2011 study titled Violence and Schizophrenia by Heidi J. Waring and William T. Carpenter, quote, in public perception, schizophrenia is often associated with violence, this view is reinforced each time there are media reports of violent acts by purported mentally ill persons. There has been inadequate scientific attention to this domain of pathology, especially in therapeutic development. Persons with schizophrenia are undoubtedly at risk of becoming victims of violence in the community settings, with risks up to 14 times the rate of being victimized compared with being arrested as a perpetrator. Although persons with schizophrenia are more likely to be the victims of violence than to perpetrate violence, the majority of literature published since 1990 regarding violence and severe mental illness has focused on perpetration rather than victimization. There have been more recent studies in regard to violence in schizophrenic individuals. A 2019 paper in the American Journal of Psychiatry titled Correlates of Future Violence in People Being Treated for Schizophrenia said that a total of 1,435 individuals with schizophrenia who had participated in the National Institute of Mental Health's Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention of Effectiveness study were followed for 18 months after their initial treatment for the disease. 77 participants, 5.4%, reported engaging in injurious violence during follow-up, and 119, 8.3%, reported engaging in exclusively non-injurious violence. 
Schizophrenia affects only 1% of the population and seems to be wildly misunderstood. It is the fourth leading cause of disability in developed countries among people's ages 15 to 44. Of those people afflicted, only 10% of people with schizophrenia will engage in violence during their lifetime. Media coverage of catastrophic violence by people thought to have psychiatric disorders raises public alarm and stigmatizes patients. Much of the media coverage fails to acknowledge that serious violence by people diagnosed with mental illness is rare and that psychiatric patients are more often victims of violence than the perpetrators. The alarmist quality of this reporting notwithstanding, mental health providers have a responsibility to reduce the risk of violence to the extent that it is possible through appropriate care. On the site healthlinkbc.ca, I found schizophrenia, warning signs of violence, along with BC-specific resources and places to contact for help, they provide the following information. While most people with schizophrenia are not violent, violence is one of the reasons someone who has schizophrenia may need hospitalization. It is a way to protect the person or those around him or her until the delusions or hallucinations often associated with the violence pass. Common signs that can indicate someone with schizophrenia may become violent include Talking about violence, especially when directed towards specific people or groups of people, such as past co-workers or places, such as churches or government buildings. Talking, writing, or drawing about death and violence. Having unexplained mood changes or behaving ag aggressively or violently. Aggressive acts may include teasing and taunting other people by calling them names, threatening, making fun of, or playing mind games with other people, or making threatening phone calls. Lying or talking about having weapons or other means such as poisons that could kill or hurt people. Not taking responsibility for his or her actions, saying that the actions are justified because of how he or she has been treated. Drinking alcohol or using illegal drugs more frequently. Increased fears of other people. Paranoia. Telling someone that he or she hears voices telling him or her to hurt or kill another person. As well as other links to learn more about this case, in our show notes, you'll find a link from heretohelp.bc.ca titled, Someone I Love Has Been Diagnosed with Schizophrenia. How Can I Help? Some of the tips they give are, educate yourself, listen, use empathy, not arguments. Don't take it personally. Take care of yourself too. Maintain your social network. Encourage your loved one to keep up with their treatment and recovery plan. And finally, Take action if you think you or your loved one is in danger. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 185, She Told Me To, The Blackman Family Tragedy. And what are your thoughts on this story, Matthew? Well, the first thing is I'm, I'm glad you call it tragedy in the title instead of a mm -hmm. crime or something like that. Right, because it's not. It's not. And, you know, I've had a lot of experience with two people in my life mm -hmm. um, who've suffered from this brain disease and they're finding out there's more of, it's not actually, it's actually a brain disease mm -hmm. um, as opposed to something psychological. Yeah. And it's, it is actually organic or yeah, biological. And chemicals and all yep. that stuff mm -hmm. in your head. And I didn't really want to interrupt the flow of this story. Right. Um, yep. Because um, I just wanted, I just wanted you to, to, get through it. <laughs> Honestly, mm -hmm. this is kind of a difficult one for me. For me too. And um, I think one of the reasons why I can't stand when people fake insane pleas mm -hmm. is because I know people have been truly sick. Right. And and you can you can kind of see from a mile away when somebody's faking it, this 
is somebody who was ill. You know, I actually had somebody once show up to my house mm-hmm. in a full schizophrenic episode. Just arrive at the front door. Yeah. Um, I thought her, I thought this person was uh, off their tits on drugs when they first came in. And, yeah. and, and so we invited them in for dinner. And I was thinking of trying to sober them up. And then o- over time, I realized it wasn't. It wasn't, this person wasn't high. Yeah, they're, yeah. And um, from that night, it was a long road for me and my whole family in the UK, I'll mm-hmm. call them. And I ended up helping to get this person sectioned. Yep. Uh, which means like put in Committed. Committed yep. against their will. Mm-hmm. I mean, like we literally had to get police and everybody to do it because I honestly thought they are going to hurt themselves or somebody else. Mm-hmm. And then of course, uh, we thought it would be like... You know, a few weeks, get back on the proper meds, and right. it ended up being months and months and yep. months and months. Oftentimes it is like that. And um, so, you know, Justin and I had to get their mail routed to us, uh, pay their bills because we wanted this person to come, like their mortgage, their electricity, because we wanted their house to be ready when they came out and not like everything fall apart. Yeah. Right. Mm. So, you know, so that was a big responsibility. And I think that experience. You know, I I became friends with the guy. I mean, we were kind of a different person. And it was sort of like, you know those two dogs on Bugs Bunny? Like yep. Butch and the little one? Yeah, I was always the little one. We were kind of like that, like so different, right? And yeah. this boy, he was a big boy. He was like 300 and something pounds, mm-hmm. right? And I guess I could, I took on the role, not through a program or anything, just to be his sane buddy. Yeah, sure. Where I realized he was, uh, you know, he didn't have a job. He'd been in jail for mm-hmm. five years because he lit his bed on fire to get rid of the, the devils. Oh, no. And burnt down an entire apartment block in, oh, in no. the UK. Yeah. And so I kind of just checked in on him twice a week to make sure he's okay. I was making sure he was getting his regular injections, so Mm -hmm. making sure the documentation was there from the nurse, because it was famously people wouldn't just show up sometimes. Right. I went to court with him a few times, so I'd, you know, show up to his place, sometimes bring him groceries, because he he, he couldn't work. Sometimes people actually need a little extra help. Yeah, and I I went to court twice. Once, um, he was going to maybe be kicked out of social housing. Mm. And I had to go and I spoke to the judge. It wasn't like a big court. Like it was the judge was in a room with us. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I said, listen, he's in the social housing because of his illness. His illness is making him yell at the walls. So right. to kick him out because of his illness, because he's in social housing, it's a really weird catch 22. And I said, I know the neighbors get annoyed. I'm like, I'm putting a little tape thing on his stereo so we can't <laughs> turn it up. And I've, and, and I, and I actually proved to the judge that, the nurse that was supposed to be arriving, the system wasn't working. It wasn't getting getting yeah. the meds when he needed to. Mm-hmm. And then plus, once he was, uh, the police had him as a, a witness. And this, there's a little bit of a funny story here. Do you want to hear the funny story? Sure. So we go to court and he's supposedly a witness and uh, I'm waiting with him. A witness for what? He said that uh, this one guy who's a well-known drug dealer in London tried to break into his house. Okay. And the police really wanted to nab this guy. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> Rob didn't tell me like what had happened. He's like, oh, the police want me. Can you just be in court? Do you want me to go? So I go. <laughs> and then up comes CCTV footage. 
of this guy, big boy, chasing this guy with like a 10 inch knife on like mid morning on a Wednesday through a shopping oh, no. mall. No. And as we leave, and eventually the court decided he was not of sound mind to be a witness, right? right. Yeah. And as we're leaving, <laughs> my friend goes, that CCTV didn't really look good at all. And I'm expecting him to go, I looked awful, crazy. Mm, yeah. And he goes, yeah, yeah, the camera really does add 10 pounds. <laughs> and I looked at him, he looked at me, and we both, and he realized what he said. We both started dying, like howling with laughter right. outside of the court. I've had experiences with that stuff too. Uh, one of my girlfriends, her mom was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic mm. and would think that people were sending messages through the walls or leaving gifts for her on various doorsteps and things like that. She would see things and she thought, oh, somebody has left that there for me and it has a specific message. So she would pick it up and bring it home. Yeah. It was very scary. Yeah. But I never saw her violent ever, not once. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, even myself uh, ended up, you know, having a bit of a break from yeah. reality in my early 20s and had to spend some time in the hospital. So yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad you didn't name this guy. I know he's changed his name. Mm -hmm. And for people out there that might know him or, you know, because yeah. we're in BC, right? I'm pretty sure he lives here in Surrey. Yeah, just yeah. give the guy a fucking break. He was really sick, right? He's not yeah. this, he's not... He feels terrible about yeah, what he did. Yeah, and I feel for him because I can't say they should have, would have, could have, but like, it just, I've been there and This I, is the thing, and yeah. this is the crux, I think, yeah. of this this whole story is we want to be really careful blaming his parents for and not I don't, and I don't want I don't want to do that cuz they're gone yeah. now but I'm just like from what I've seen in my experience mm -hmm. and they they didn't know and I'm just like ah oh, you know it's just you're telling the story and I'm like no yeah. you know cuz you can see it coming yeah and it's not a oh, you should have it's a oh, it, it's from the heart oh my god you should have right so yeah. like that's yeah. that's what i mean by it yeah so it's it's not we're not blaming them god, we're no. not saying they god, made no. the wrong decision no because 9 times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100 the right decision is the decisions that they made and um, this shit's hard man yep. this shit is hard Yep. Uh, right. Richard Blackman was going to yeah. bring him in the next day. Yeah. yeah. I just didn't want to do it that evening. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 It's very sad. And you don't, you don't know. You just don't know. No. On to voicemails. If you're so inclined, you can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. We would love to hear from you. Let's only hear nice people today. Hey, Mike and Matt. This is Alexandra from Ontario. I'm just calling to add to the conversation about the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board that it was uh, in today's episode. Um, I've represented clients in front of the board uh, applying for benefits, and it's not a very generous system, but what it does do is it helps compensate victims for out-of-pocket expenses, such as counseling and other things related to their medical care following a uh, criminal act perpetrated upon them. And um, I really think this uh, this board and the benefits are very essential because sometimes you can't pursue the, um, the criminal for compensation. Either they don't have the funds or they're unknown. And uh, so it, it, it is a good thing. And it's not an incredibly generous program. So um, for those who are fiscally concerned, it's not something that takes a big bite out of uh, taxpayers' 
dollars. At least that's my humble opinion. And uh, again, I love the show. Love you guys so much. I love how it's so focused on the victims. And and so that's uh, just my two cents. Anyways, thanks. Have a great day and look forward to the next uh, 100 episodes. Bye. <laughs> well, there you go. So I, I love it when people call with more information that is pertinent to something yeah. that we were confused about. Yeah, last, no, and last that, week. that was helpful because I'd never heard of it before. Mm-hmm. And it just needed to sink in and, and hearing that actually helps me understand a little bit more of what it's for yeah. and, and what it does. So thanks for calling. Alex- and for- Ale- Alexandra, do you know that Leonard Cohen song? Where she, he sings about Alexandra. It's a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Listen to that song, Alexandra. It's cool. It's very good. I love Leonard Cohen. We tried to listen to another one, and it was a guy named Daniel from Ontario on a lawnmower, calling. and it was hilarious. But we couldn't. It couldn't. We just couldn't play because we couldn't hear him well enough. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I love that he fucking called from a lawnmower. Thanks for calling <laughs> Thanks, from your Daniel. lawnmower, Daniel. <laughs> Can you come do some gardening for me? Exactly. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Hi, Matt. Um, I'm going off script, so please bear with me. Um, I'm a longtime listener. My name is Emily. I'm from Prince George. Uh, longtime listener, first time caller, and a slightly new member of the Yumber Yard. Um, I just wanted to call because I just listened to the Renfrew County Rampage podcast, and I heard that you guys didn't get any messages. So I wanted to call to send you a little message um, just saying that I appreciate that the podcast is around. I appreciate both you and Matt as host and co-host and as people. You guys are amazing. Um, And Matt has the smoothest voice ever. It's so soothing to listen to him, um, especially when I'm at work, which I am right now. (laughs) Um, Also, I work at a dog kennel. So if Steve ever needs a place to stay in Prince George, uh, call me up. I will always make a room for Steve. (laughs) Thank you so much. Have a great day and shit in your hat. Bye. Well, there you go. Uh, Thank you so much. She was referring to the Renfrew County Rampage 180, episode 180. And yeah, that guy was a turd. But yeah, nobody called us. Uh, Yeah. Yeah that week and we were feeling blue we were feeling blue thank you from prince george yeah so one of the new princes is named prince george isn't he i do believe so what if he ends up being like a total cock knocker and like everyone's embarrassed to be from like prince george because they everyone starts thinking it's that prince george Hmm. i don't know there is prince albert right (laughs) 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 i'm from prince albert oh that must hurt Have you ever been up to Prince George? I have. Is it nice? Uh, I have been to Prince George. <laughs> no, it's it's not bad. Is there like, like a lot of natural beauty around there? There is, and yeah. I I haven't uh, I haven't spent a lot of time there. I've driven through, but mm-hmm. not I've not been there. Been there. Okay. So I can't really give a, a good assessment of what Prince George is like. Actually, a, th- a friend of mine started a rehab facility up there. Oh, great! Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of so cool. Put down the money to do it. Yeah. Um, my friend Art, mm-hmm. I have a number of friends named Art, which is interesting, but one of my friends named Art lives in Indaco, British Columbia. Oh, in so, f- so not my Art. Not your not Art. Not Art with the pickles. No, not okay. Art with the pickles. Okay. This is Art with the pigs. And, and with the Susie. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, this friend named Art has pigs. Okay. He has like a farm up in Indaco. So Indaco... How many pigs does he have? I don't know. If you draw an X through British Columbia from corner to corner... Right. He, is, he lives essentially right in the min, the middle where the X crosses. Okay. Yeah, so... X marks the pig. X marks the spot. But anyway... Um, yeah, so thank you for calling thank from you. Prince George. We do appreciate it. And thanks it. for the offer of me bringing Steve all the way up for a kennel. Right? Here's another voicemail. Hi, guys. This is Angela from uh, Keswick, Ontario. So I'm just about 45 minutes north of Toronto. Um, following Mike's uh, suggestion there. And I'm going to start with, Hi! <laughs> Um, and basically nothing really exciting happens or crimey happens to me, but I do have a small little kind of story that, uh, was actually told to me by, um, one of my ex-husband's friends. Um, my ex-husband grew up in Scarborough and, uh, his friend Mike, who I've actually met and went to a few concerts with, um, he was waiting by the, uh, he was waiting at the bus stop down in Scarborough. And one day, uh, one night when he was uh, waiting there, a gentleman pulled over and told him, hey, you know the bus stops aren't really that safe these days. Get in and I'll take you home. Later found out, he found out after everything unveiled and uh, the man's picture was on the TV that the man that uh, told my friend uh, Mike to stay uh, to stay away from the bus stops. From that man was Paul Bernardo. That's the closest I've ever gotten to any kind of crimey thing. But anywho, guys, love the podcast. Started out watching uh, Bailey Sarian doing her thing. Got the boyfriend into watching that, and he stumbled upon uh, upon dark poutine. So uh, I've enjoyed binge listening to this while I'm sitting uh, behind my desk doing accounting work. And uh, so, anywho, let's see if I can remember how to end, uh, end this properly. I think Mike said to say, go shit in your hat. Anywho, guys, have a great one and keep doing what you're doing. Wow. Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard from anybody who had any connection at all, even though, you know, it's a couple of degrees away to Paul Bernardo. Mm. That's a case that I have been planning to cover. Uh, I want to do it the right way and dedicate um, at least th three or four episodes to that. Mm. So it will be quite an epic, Did, I think. Didn't he try changing his name to Teal? Yes, he, he actually has changed his name to Paul Teal. That's T-E-A-L. -E. Yeah, yeah. With yeah. somebody like that, we will, yeah. tell, we will say what their yeah. new names are. Because... That guy doesn't get to remain anonymous. Nope. Uh, but yeah, uh, Bernardo is an, uh, a creepy character. And isn't that interesting that you hear stories about these guys a lot of times, uh, they'll say, well, you know, like Ted Bundy said to Ann Rule, Hey, you know, you never know who's out there, right? <laughs> it's you, Ted. It was you. Crazy. Yeah. So again, if you want to leave us a voicemail, we would love if you did that, um, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. PTN. And again, we'd love to hear from you regardless. 
even if it's just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome, like that one. Try to keep it under two minutes, and often the best stories are the ones, the best voicemails are the ones that have been written out beforehand. Because, you know, it is what it is. In longhand with a quill pen. With a quill. <laughs> so now let's move on to Patreon. Let's see. Patreon. 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 Yeah, I need to do those friggin' jingles. Patreon. Did she say she's from Ches Lake? I think so. I'm trying to figure out where Ches Lake is. I've never heard of it before. Mm. And whenever people say 45 minutes out of Toronto, I'm like, yeah, from which part of Toronto? Because you can be downtown in traffic for 45 minutes. <laughs> right? <laughs> like a 45 minutes as the crow flies, maybe? Yeah. Uh, but, you know. All right. Let's see who became a patron this week. First up, from Hamilton or Hammertown, Ontario, we have Gail Christie Logan. Gail. Dun, 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 dun. What does Gail Christie Logan do there in Hamilton, Ontario? Well, you know, I went to college in Hamilton, Ontario. Oh, did you? What did you take at co in college in Hamilton? Advertising and marketing. Surprise. Yeah. And I used to live on Grant Street. I was talking to somebody in the Empire. I used to live on Grant Street, where the famous Grant Street Studios is. Mm -hmm. I didn't live in the studios. Um, so I think she either is a music producer. Okay. Or a teacher at Slohawk College, where I went to school. Okay. Or a steel worker. Well, there you go. Or a steel worker. Well, it was because steel hammers. town. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, people. Gail Logan. People shit on Hamilton. I don't. But there's actually the escarpment there. There's actually it has a lot to offer. I've been to Hamilton a few times. People are always mean there. to it, and I kind of get punchy. Yeah. <laughs> Next up from Kyle, Texas, we have Mama Bear. Mama Bear. Mama Bear, uh, as opposed to Papa Bear or Baby Bear, but Mama Bear. What does Mama Bear do there in Texas except rifle through garbage and get brain worms? <laughs> I think Mama Bear has a bear sanctuary, and that's why she calls oh, herself Mama Bear. She's like the Carol Baskin of bears. No, but except not... Except not... Bonkers. Yeah. Um, are there bears in Texas? Probably. Don't they have a bear on their flag? No, that's, that's California. California. Okay. Yeah. California, Texas, same state. <laughs> same thing. <laughs> it's kind of like you couldn't get two different states. No, you, could no. you? Well. No. No, you probably no, you couldn't. couldn't. No. no. Yeah. Just want to be sure that we're saying that. Maine. <laughs> yeah. Maine and Texas, very different. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 Bangal. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to Bangar. Banger. <laughs> anyway. So thank you, Mama Bear. Thanks, Mama Bear. And continue doing what you do there with your bear sanctuary. <laughs> and I just, all I think about is the Grizzly Man, the Werner Herzog movie. Don't ever listen to this tape. Don't ever listen. It is terrible. But you will hear. What, what, what was the movie called? Grizzly Man. You've never seen it? It's a documentary no. about this gentleman who went out and lived with grizzly bears uh, for years and then eventually got well, eaten by got one. eaten yep why would i want to watch that well you don't see it it's it's a very interesting uh social commentary on on people and yeah, you okay. learn you learn a lot about denial it's, it's the quite, river in egypt it's not a river in egypt <laughs> not just <laughs> anyway so yeah give that a try 
Next up, we have Sarah. And Sarah, we're not really sure where Sarah is from because no shipping address, nothing. Ah. So where is Sarah from, Matthew? She is from the little village of uh, Shirakawago in Japan. Wow. It's on the foot of uh, Mount Hakusan. Okay. And, um, you know, it's really, have you ever seen photos of this village? No. Picturesque at rolling rice fields and this beautiful. beautiful river. Yeah. Traditional thatched roof farmhouses. Some of the houses are like 250 years old. Very yeah. nice. Yep. Well, that sounds like a really great place. Yep. What does Sarah do there? Uh, the traditional art of dying and weaving. Oh, I, traditional art of dying. I thought like, <laughs> well, everybody kind of does art, that. No, no, dying as in Oh, color. I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> like immediately I think, oh, wow. And, and, so she, and she measures <gasps> she measures soba noodles as well. So they're like the same length. Ah, yeah. soba noodles are yummy. I almost got us some today, and I went for the A and W instead. Did you did you post that horrible picture of the poutine? No, I will post it after Please we're done do. recording. But it was like honestly, guys, I bring this poutine from A and W. It is horrible looking, and because we're called dark poutine, I felt like I let us Mike and I down <laughs> because yeah. it was so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm a connoisseur of poutine, uh, and I'm not fussy, but that was. That was horrendous looking. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't, didn't taste it as It did bad. have squeaky curds, which is important. Didn't taste as bad as it looked, mm -hmm. you know. But first, before I forget, Arigato Sarah. Arigato Sarah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. We're done talking about poutine. That was not good. We have another person who I'm not sure where she is from. And this is Melanie Priest. Hello, Melanie Hello, Priest from Melanie. Colmar, France. Colmar, France. Have oh, it, it, bonjour, mademoiselle, or madame. It, or you could actually put a little German uh, oh, accent on there as well. Oh, really? It's in the Alsace region, so it's like okay. Alsatian. Right? Interesting. So close to uh, close to uh, Switzerland? Yeah, well, it's. I used to drive down when I was in uh, Frankfurt ah, okay. a few times. And I remember it's close to Strasbourg as okay. well. And uh, be like this, you know, these little villages with winding roads. And uh, yeah, I want to see Europe and, like that. And the like, uh, the what do you call those grape fields? What the do you vineyards, call them? vineyards, <laughs> grape fields, <laughs> the grape fields, <laughs> the grape fields of Ma Colmar. Matthew just had his homosexual card revoked because <laughs> he didn't know what a vineyard was. <laughs> the grape. Well, was, did we talk about Martha's Vineyard? No, that, yes, we talked about Martha's so Vineyard. Funny. Yeah, that was so funny. He thought it belonged hey, to Stewart. But a lot of people on the Umber Yard said, "Oh my God, I didn't know that. I thought it was owned by Martha Stewart." So I'm not the only person that. That thought no. that no you're not I'm, and i'm so glad i can spread the wisdom so what does melanie priest do there in france with a germanic accent put it this way she has purple feet well there she there you go so she stomps grapes stomping on the grapes yeah, yeah. do you ever see that video of the news lady who <laughs> falls in <laughs> the sound machine goes, ow, 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 ow. and then she well, when she falls off the stage? Yeah. And that, that, Ugh. oh, so I felt so bad And for then her. she just squeals like an, an animal in pain. <sighs> oh, that's hurt. horrendous. Look at us, but we're laughing. Apparently she broke a rib or two. Yeah, that hurts. Yeah, serves her right. What? <laughs> <laughs> for doing <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Melanie. Thanks, there Melanie. in France. Keep stomping those grapes. Or should I say, 
Merci beaucoup. Look at me. I'm very multicultural today. Yeah. Next up, we have Janine Stiles. And Janine is from Billings, Montana. Billings, Montana. Billings, Montana. I may or may not have driven through Montana, but very quickly because there was no speed limit. Is she related to Harry Styles? I don't know. She probably gets that all the time. I wouldn't doubt that. And wouldn't it, why is it called Billings? Great question. Is it like a big accountancy office? Is there? Or I don't know. <laughs> there are Billings in Ontario or Montana. Ontario. Well, I, Montario. Mike just had a bit. Montana. Of a, I had a bit of a cardiovascular accident. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Well, there you go. And what does Janine do there in, oh, in Billings? I think she's a bookkeeper because she's in Billings. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Janine. Next up, we have Stephen Scorb. And Stephen, I'm going to take a wild guess, <laughs> is from Oran, Algeria. Oran, Algeria. Well, what do you think Stephen does there in Oran? I think he's a specialist hashishan. Well, who shouldn't be doing hashish? Me and you, because that, that is not something that we do. I make hashish. Yes, you do. I'm about to launch a really nice one. There you go. Your company makes yeah, it. Yeah. You don't personally make hashish. No, but I help. I help. Um, but the, I helped. I help. <laughs> no, I help the product development, the styles and types that we're going to go for. There you go. From consumer research. And Stephen helped me to develop this one. Excellent. Yeah. Next, we have Avery Klein. And Avery is from Calgary, Alberta. Avery. Avery. From Calgary. From Calgary. And what does Avery do? What do they do there in Calgary? Avery is the artist that did that head sculpture in front of that big new tall building. There's a new tall building in Calgary? Yeah, it's sort of like, if I remember correctly, it shapes somewhat like the Toronto um, city hall where it's sort of like a little like concave yeah concave and there's a big head sculpture that's kind of cool and she's the artist that created that and Avery is the artist that created yeah. that very good and that's, she does all kinds of public I don't know if Avery's he or she Avery it's yeah there's it's a male or female name. Oh, oh really yeah okay so if Avery is a boy replace all of the he's she's with he's yeah and if Avery is a girl mm-hmm keep it the she's and if avery is is, is non-binary please change it to they yeah but we love you anyway so thank you <laughs> thank you avery <laughs> uh yeah it's it's hard doing this because we want to be sensitive to people's gender preference next we have tyra morin and tyra is oh did did we say yeah we did and tyra next we have tyra morin boy i'm a mess today Next, we have Tyra Morin and Tyra. Is she related to Tyra Banks? I don't know, but she lives in Prince George, British Columbia. Oh, another Prince Georgian. Yeah. So what do you think that Tyra Morin does there in Prince George? I think she works at that kennel. She works at the kennel. Yeah. Everybody yeah. works at the kennel. Everybody works at the kennel in Prince George. Well, there you go. I love people who take care of dogs. Me too. Because my dad was, is, he, well, he was a veterinarian. I guess he still is, technically. You're still a doctor until you... So if I, like, was in, sorry, which province are you from? Nova again? Scotia. If I was in Nova Scotia 
and I got a gunshot wound, but like didn't want the police to get involved. Could your dad stitch me up? He probably could. Cool. I'm, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Next, we have a Nicole Clark. And Nicole is from Chase, British Columbia. And uh, my friend Vicky, uh, you know Vicky, she used to live in Chase. Okay. Yeah, Chase is a great little place. I like Chase. Um, what does Nicole do there in Chase? She's the CEO of the Chase Bank, which is based in Chase. That is not true, but she is. <laughs> Can you imagine the global Chase Bank is from Chase, B.C.? Chase, B.C. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It, well, it would help the economy there, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Nicole. Thanks, Nicole. <laughs> Next, we have Elizabeth Williams. And I don't know where Elizabeth is from. There's been a few people who are not so keen on giving us where they're from, but I am going to take a wild guess. I can, I know where she's from. Okay, where she's from. Her last name is Williams. She's Welsh. Oh, she's Welsh. Yep. Where in Wales is she from? Any particular place? Yes, she is from Cardiff. Cardiff. Yeah, that's not a Welsh accent. No. She's from Cardiff, Wales. There you go. Mm -hmm. Anthony Hopkins is Welsh as well. Okay. And so Shirley and then Bassey. I ate his liver with some Shirley Bassey as well. Nice of course, you like you do Anthony Hopkins, the gay guy. Though. Shirley Bassey's from Wales. <laughs> <laughs> Diamonds are forever. Isn't Tom Jones from Wales? Yes, he it's is. not unusual to be loved by anyone. Yeah, me, 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 me. my friend Jerry is from Wales. Jerry, Jerry Garant is his well, real proper name. Yeah. Garant. Really? Does he live over on the island? He lives in London, UK. Oh, okay. Because I know another guy with that exact Geraint. same name. He's who, Welsh. Who lives on the island. Hello, Welsh Geraint. Hello, small world. But anyway, uh, yeah, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much, Elizabeth Williams. From, thank you, Elizabeth. From Wales. I so, think it's a Welsh name. What does I don't it, know. Is there a language? I guess there is a it Welsh. It might be a Welsh name. It just happens to make one of my... Best friends, closest friends, colleagues from London was Welsh, from Wales, and his last name was William. So I assume it's a Welsh name. I always make the joke in my head about Wales having a language like... Yeah, you would. The Wales. It's Wales songs. No, oh, you see, I'm terrible. Okay. Next up, from Fort McMurray, Alberta, Lisa Michelle. Fort Lisa. Mac. Yeah. Uh, what does Lisa do there in Fort Mac? She's a rig pig. Wh easy. <laughs> what is a rig pig? A rig pig is a guy that works on the rigs. Okay. And I'm just being non-sexist saying a girl could be a rig pig too. Yeah. Most women don't like being called oh, a pig. I'm sorry. Let's redo this one. I didn't mean to. Let's redo, it. redo this one. Okay. <laughs> we could make a thing of it. It could be no, funny. No, I don't want to insult anyone. Okay, and what does Lisa do up there in Fort Mac? Okay, she probably works on the rigs. Right. Or she's a nurse. Or she's a nurse. I'll say that because my cousin or husband <laughs> used to live up there. And the, one of oh. them works on the rigs. And, and the other. one's in the nurse. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Fort Mac. What are, how's Fort Mac doing after? Well, I mean, we've had like so it, it, many towns burning down I since know. then. It's Lytton, so sad. Lytton is being rebuilt. Yeah. There's a lot of people donating money for Lytton to be rebuilt, which is yeah. great. Um, Fort Mac, I think is bouncing back. Yeah. My cousins, like they were 
fleeing. Mm. It was horrible. People's yeah. tires were melting. Yeah, as yeah. they were driving. Fifteen thousand people evacuated. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, hope those dark days are over. And thank you. Thank you so much, Lisa. And uh, that is it for patrons. Let's move on to donut money donors. I'm typing the word donut into my uh, into my search engine because uh, yeah, that's where we have the donut money donors is under donuts. Donut. All right. So here goes nothing. We don't have any donut money donors this week. Dun, 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 I'm going to. That's okay this week because I'm trying to lose weight. There you go. So Matthew doesn't need donuts. However, Mike does. <laughs> and actually, Matthew is trying to lose weight, but that doesn't mean we can't have donut money. We could have salad money. That's true. It's, it's we'll call it donut money, but we'll we'll have salad money. Yeah, it's it's. I decided salad. to get my shit together, people, and lose some weight. Matthew says he wants to lose weight. I am losing weight. Well. At least you have been. I, I was. You're it, melting it, away in front of me, yeah, Mike. Yeah, it just seems like it stopped for a while, and mm. I'm a little frustrated. But anyway, I think I'll be okay. Eventually. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> Eventually, I'll be okay. Um. Yeah. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at Patreon.com/slash Dark Poutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it'd mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. My book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available for pre-order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, please check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.